Hi, I'm Dr. Paula Redmond, a clinical psychologist, and you're listening to the When Work Hurts podcast. On this show, I want to explore the stories behind the statistics of the mental health crisis facing healthcare professionals today, and to provide hope for a way out through compassion, connection, and creativity. Join me as I talk to inspiring clinicians and thought leaders in healthcare about their unique insights and learn how we can support ourselves and each other when work hurts. Can you think of a time when someone was rude to you at work? I'm guessing you probably can, especially if you work in healthcare. These interactions can feel like a real punch in the guts and can stay with us long after the moment has passed. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Chris Turner, who is a consultant in emergency medicine in Coventry and co-founder of Civility Saves Lives. He unpacks the far-reaching impact that rudeness at work can have and how to respond to it. I began by asking him about how he got into this work. I suppose there's different strands. Obviously, there's been an emergency medicine consultant in a major trauma centre, and that's you know, it's a privilege all, all of its own. But one of the things that fell out of that in the, in the last probably seven years or so has been this idea that behaviour matters in the context of work. And it doesn't just matter on an individual level. It matters on a team level. It matters at an organisational level. It matters for patient safety. It matters all over the place. And one of the starting places for me w- was... I don't know, maybe maybe you recognise this. You know when you go to work and you, and you get have an interaction with somebody and you feel like crap afterwards and you go, oh, oh, that was awful. And then you can finally feel this weird internal shame and a bit angry at yourself because you haven't dealt with it. And then you think to yourself, you know what, maybe I'm too soft to work around here. Maybe I'm not the right sort of person f- for this kind of environment. And what happened for me was that I... I, I was actually having a chat with a guy called Trevor Dale, who runs a human factors organisation, and Trev's a pal of mine. And we were talking about the work that was beginning to emerge that said that behaviour mattered. And I went and read the Christine Porath work on this. And it was such a light bulb moment when I realised that those moments when I feel um, maybe I'm not tough enough, maybe I'm too soft it's not just me, it's other people as well. This is the human condition. This is how we respond to those moments when people treat us in ways that feel disrespectful. And realising that opened doors to a whole world of thinking about this stuff differently. Because if it's not just me, if it's you as well, if it's other people, then what impact is this having on our ability to do our thing? No matter what our thing is, you know, it could be healthcare, but it could be outside healthcare as well. And then thinking more about teams and stuff like that. And at the same time as I, I, I was reading about this stuff, I was still at that time doing investigations into critical incidents in the workplace. And I had noticed how seduced we are by blame how we find somebody who seems to have done the wrong thing and then we basically stand around point the finger sometimes with the arm that's so rigid that the finger is shaking at the end of it and we say hey it's their fault and that feels quite nice if it's not you on some levels you know you feel like you're absolved from it but then to realize that the behaviors of that person were sometimes driven through the interactions they were having with other folk was it was a moment of unfolding complexity in my understanding of what was going wrong when things went wrong. And that just started to snowball. I had a, I met, had a conversation with Joe Farmer. Um, Joe had been my F1, my F1, the F1 in the department. I own nobody. Um, but he'd been the F1 in the department and he'd asked to come and see me a few months afterwards. And... I have to say, I felt a bit anxious because Joe's a fairly quiet guy. And that he had asked to come and see me a few months afterwards, I was thinking, have I really offended you at some point? Did I say or do something? And the reason that you're coming to speak to me is because you finally want to get this off your chest. Um, which was, you know, OK, 
okay, a slightly paranoid perspective to take on this. Uh, but it does happen occasionally. You know, people come see me. I couldn't really see a good reason why Joe would want to come and see me. Anyway, he came and saw me. We had a coffee, and he said actually what he was interested in was he wanted to do a project. He didn't know what project he wanted to do. That he knew that I was interested in unusual aspects of work about how we treat each other. I was interested in what sort of environment do we create for each other. And it just happened that in that conversation, we started to have a a discussion about something that had happened to him years previously when he'd been in theatre and he had seen uh, a doctor that he liked and respected who was massively supportive to him came in, who was the registrar, went to do an operation with the consultant present, started off fairly confidently. The consultant was not in a good place. The consultant kept, the consultant surgeon kept poking and poking and poking verbally at this doctor and eventually the the other doctor's performance started to drop off. His registrar's performance dropped off. As it dropped off, Joe became aware that the the consultant was more and more hostile and eventually got to the stage where the registrar was completely unable to do the job. And this is a job that Joe knew that they could do. They were completely unable to do it, and the consultant took over. And the thing that resonated was I had just read the evidence or some of the evidence on this about how when you're put under lots of pressure, your brain closes down, and actually your hand-eye coordination closes down, your decision-making drops off. And we thought, do you know what, maybe we could do a talk or two about this. Maybe people would be interested to understand the impact that this has on performance. And, and Joe's in training to be a psychiatrist, so it kind of fits in his world a little bit. Um, and then we had a chat about what we would do. And I think branding and marketing become important. I think branding's important if you want people to walk away and remember the thing you have to give them a title and we sat and we talked about the title of Civility Saves Lives for a long time. We came up with Civility Saves Lives really early on and really early on and we discarded it because at the time we didn't think that people would get what the word civility meant and in fact for the first couple of years we got a lot of people saying what is this word civility and we were, we ourselves were kind of seduced by the negative messaging. So um, yeah, you do see people using this. You know, it's the classic is "don't be a dick," and you know, yeah, fine. But you can. I mean, we went through "don't be a," and you could basically name any primary or secondary sexual characteristic, and it, ha- it so happens that you can be any. Don't be any of those things. Um, and what happened was that gradually we came to the conclusion that this wasn't the approach. This negative approach wasn't the right way to, to do it, because a people people don't come to work to be that person. And a lot of people don't believe they're being that person, even in the moment when others might see them that way. Um, And the second, probably more important thing was we were aware of and enjoying the Learning from Excellence movement, which comes out of Birmingham Children's Hospital and Adrian and Emma Plunkett. And Learning from Excellence is a pro-social movement. It says, how are we going to learn from the good stuff? Not stop having the bad stuff, not stop doing the bad stuff. It's what's the good stuff? Let's run with it. So instead of don't be a dick, we ended up with back to civility saves lives. That's what we called it. And then we start doing a few talks. And Joe does talks. I do talks. A bunch of other people do talks. People now use civility saves lives um, as a logo and a platform around the world. Um, we don't control it in any way. It's all Creative Commons. People can use it in any way they like. Um, and I, I'm really glad we choose to, chose to do it like that because I tell you what, trying to control this, uh, you know, it's basically, it does its own thing. It's organic. It spreads. If it resonates, people talk about it and they can use the logo, not use the logo. They can approach it from whatever way they like and the whole thing basically runs on trust and good intention. And I know that every so often people will do it in a way that I would be uncomfortable with. And I've just had to learn to live with that. How, how do you define civility or incivility? In the eyes of the beholder. <laughs> um, it's, it's not, this is something that's really uncomfortable for people. When they say I didn't mean to be uncivil. And I, I truly get that. 
um, you know, I could say something to you just now, which I would mean with warmth, possibly even what I thought was wit. And you might find that quite offensive. And you might find it disrespectful that I said that to you. So I just said the, the don't be a dick thing. You, you might go, oh, that might be an ouch moment for you. And there's literally no intent to offend on my part when I say that. The problem with all this stuff is it's not about my intent. It becomes about how things land. And we, we see it happening time and time and time again that when something lands and people find it disrespectful, they tend to think the other person's been deliberately disrespectful. And that, that's a big bear trap. You know, that's, that's generally not what's happening. But that's the thing that has the impact on their ability to think. You know, whether you're a witness, whether you're the recipient, actually, occasionally, sometimes when you do it, what happens is that as the person who's seeing or hearing it, it's having an impact on your cognitive ability, your hand-eye coordination, your desire to help other people. And that's problematic for the whole team if we're relying on the team all performing at their best. I can certainly resonate with that in terms of recognize you know I worked in mental health care for long long time and you know you deal with difficult stuff every day but so often the stuff that you bring home was the interactions when you felt that someone was rude to you I was in a, a team where we had to move buildings and kind of you know then sharing space with other people you know really difficult and all of those kind of um, tensions that would sometimes come out in rude behavior were the things that made going to work really hard and as you say take up a lot of headspace a lot of cognitive labor to manage that. Sometimes if I'm running workshops with people at the beginning if we've got time then we'll start off with a good day, bad day work. What makes a good day? What makes a bad day? And it's an exercise that loads of us have done many times. It's still frequently very useful, though, because once we start to look at what makes a good day at work, if you're working in a system that works a little bit, and this changes when your system is broken, uh, if you're working in a system where you can process the thing that you do, whatever that is, then it the thing that makes a good day at work tends to be about relationships. It tends to be about who we are to each other and how we felt, our emotions at, at the end of the day, and for good or for bad. Uh, this does change a tiny wee bit when you work in a system that is, frankly, screwed. So uh, in my world, in emergency medicine at the moment, um, in the UK and actually around the world, there's a huge problem with getting patients through our departments because hospitals are full. So where do the patients go once we've seen them? Well, sometimes nowhere. And in that setting, capacity causes people tremendous distress. Um, but so do relationships. And relationships crumble in, in that setting and we treat each other less well, partly because we make assumptions about other people's intentions and the things that they've done. And we don't think that people are trying to help us. And we get angry at each other and we we judge. And I suppose it, I, I realize I'm drifting a wee bit from the, from the start of this, but one of the big messages for me that I've learned over the years is if I can suspend judgment about the intention of other people, and I've got various ways I try and do that with myself. If I can suspend judgment about it, then I can ask questions to understand what's going on in their world. And actually, the world isn't as negative as I think it is. And people aren't trying to screw me over and make my life harder. They're just trying to do things from their own perspective in ways that make things better for them, possibly without recognising the impact it has on my world. And... An awful lot of this nowadays for me, if I if I get into these conversations and feel that I feel that somebody's being offensive to me, I've trained myself and been trained by others to pull my lens back a bit and go, what do I really know? 
what do I absolutely know about this? How much of this is me superimposing assumptions and judgment on people? And can I get can I think of the question that's going to unlock the conversation so that I understand the situation better? So, so I guess there's something there about being able to depersonalize the situation so that you're feeling less offended or you know it feels less personal. But is there a danger of that becoming overly permissive if we're very understanding um, of why someone might behave? Yeah. In this way, how, how do we tackle it? Then it gets a bit slippery. That's a brilliant question. The risk of being overly permissive and being the risk of then sort of being hacked off at yourself for letting things happen mm. around you. And and we I think we drift quickly into the sort of relationships that we have with people that allows us to let them know that things are not okay. Um and for me the the way that this runs in my head and actually the way we teach people to do it is if somebody says or does something that you find offensive um that you find wrong then part of the deal is to find a way to let them know that once they know that and in a non-judgmental way so you're saying how you feel rather than how you're very familiar with this but it's, it's how i feel rather than what you you did to me rather than ascribing intent to somebody else then you've let them know you set your stall if they then continue to do that thing then that's a conscious choice on their part to either keep doing it or to not respect you and that changes the dynamic of that can i can i just run with that for a second or two is that okay mm-hmm. so when pretty patel got done for being for having bullying behavior not being a bully having bullying behavior when she got um into trouble for that a number of times people asked me about it afterwards uh, when we're in the q a session of things and they're saying but pretty patel shouldn't she just be punished for that and my take on that's a wee bit different i think that pretty patel if she was behaving in a way that other people felt was bullying then the organisation, not necessarily the people who were bullied, but the organisation had a duty to let her know that that, how, that was how that was being perceived. Once she knew that that was how it was being perceived, if she continued to behave in that way, that a way that was regarded as being bullying, then I think there's a space there for punitive measures, eventually. I mean, much more into restoration than retribution, but um, I think there becomes a space for punitive measures. And the... The idea that other people just know how they're coming across is deeply attractive and completely wrong an awful lot of the time. And one of the nice things about me being able to talk about this is I'm a member of the Labour Party. So I'm not coming at this from a political perspective where I I have a desire to, um, to protect and support somebody from another political party. But I do have a desire to understand and have a desire to give everybody the chance to be the best versions of themselves. And we don't do that by trapping people in their worst behaviours and defining them through that and not allowing them to reflect and to, to make amends and to behave differently. And I guess what comes to my mind in relation to that is something about power that to 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 go to someone and say you know you've said you've offended me if if there's a a strong power dynamic there if if they have more power is really hard damn right um and i think we screw this up i think we screw this up on a global corporate level um and i don't think it really matters what organization organization you deal with I think people in positions of power do not recognise the position of power that they're in a lot of the time. I think there are a lot of permissive leadership behaviours where people um, behave certain ways and they kind of believe in their heart that, you know, hey, you know, my door is always open. Anybody can come and talk to me. What they don't recognise, and I speak to chief execs about this, they say my door is always open. Say your door is open, but that is a cliff face to cross the threshold. That's, you know... There's nothing easy in that. And one of the things that we do when we're dealing with people and saying, hey, you've got to call out this stuff, is we put the responsibility onto the person who feels offended to tell the other person. 
there's a whole world of issues within that. One of them is that we know from work done by people like Kruger and Epley in 2005, we, we know that when somebody talks to us and treats us in a certain way, no matter the way, we believe that we understand 90% of the intent of that. We absolutely think that we get it. Um, and the and that's whether it's by email or whether it's face-to-face. But the, actually, the, the numbers for this, when it's face-to-face, it's about 78%. When it's by email, it's 56%. So actually, we're having these interactions with people where we, we are convinced we know the intent of the other person. And yet we're wrong. We're wrong an awful, awful, awful lot of the time. But if it becomes my responsibility to talk, and Paula, I'm going to make you into the bully. Paula Redmond, the bully. And so Paula's treated Chris like crap. Paula's the boss, and she struts her stuff, um, and we have an interaction. Now, Paula thinks this is a normal interaction. I, on the other side, I'm devastated. Chris has been crushed. You are the worst podcast guest ever, Chris. We're not going to publish this because, honest to God, what a lot of crap. And and you think you're delivering a piece of information to me that with your with your with your own form of candor, and you think in your head it's this is the kindness. Let him know this, and I am devastated. You walk away from that conversation, and a lot of the time you will feel fine about that because you think that was you know, what what you did was um, you, you might even think that was compassionate. And I am destroyed. So I then go to somebody else, and Charlotte's a producer, and I I go to her, and she's in HR, and she says, "All right, Chris, we have the stuff for you. We're going to put you on our crucial conversation course. In fact, do you know what?" We've got an advanced one called Difficult Conversations. And we have a special module. Um, and we call it Speaking Truth to Power. And I mean, that is to slightly corrupt the work on Speaking Truth to Power, clearly. But this is what organisations do. They put the responsibility back onto the shoulders of the supposed victim. At the end of this, it becomes my responsibility to come and talk to you to tell you that what you said made me feel like crap. Now, the problem within this is I still believe you deliberately treated me like crap. I have 90% certainty around this. So effectively, I'm being asked to go and speak to my aggressor, my who I assume deliberately aggressed me, was aggressive towards me. And I am saying, hey, Paula, you know how you hurt me? You know, you tried to hurt me. Well, it worked. What am I doing there? apart from empowering the person who tried to hurt me. And unsurprisingly, people don't do it. In fact, they then feel guilt about not doing it because they think, am I so weak I can't go and have this conversation? No, you're normal. You're normal and we don't take ourselves into that arena very easily. So where the evidence sits around this for me is a fascinating place. And there's a guy called Jerry Hickson in Nashville, um, Vanderbilt Uni, and Jerry Hickson's a paediatrician. And, you know, in the days before we used Zoom and Teams and all the rest of it, um, which was a mere three and a half, four years ago, um, I <laughs> I went to Nashville to see Jerry Hickson for an hour um, <laughs> because because his work is mind-blowing. And what Jerry Hickson has said, and he is just the loveliest man. You know, you know, you meet people and you go, oh, well, you just like be a kind of surrogate dad for me or something, you know? <laughs> um, and I went to see Jerry Hickson. And what he does, what he's done is introduced this system where Paula and Chris have a, a, a negative interaction. I perceive it as negative interaction, usually down a hierarchy. Um, but it's not my responsibility to come and tell you. Because when I do come and tell you, I either deliver it poorly or I don't come. Um, and they use a second messenger. And this second messenger is a person who's trained to listen to my perspective. And then they will come and speak to you, Paul. And when they come and speak to you, they aren't going to bring the emotion that I've brought to the table. They are coming to speak to you and they have two purposes when they come and speak to you. The first one is to care about you in the conversation. That's counterintuitive, but they're going to care about you because 
pretty much nobody wants to cause other people offence. And the second bit is that they're going to land a piece of information with you, almost always. And the piece of information is that after you and Chris had the conversation the other day, Chris was really upset, I know you'd want to know. And that's it. There's no, and what are you going to do about it? There's no, you're a bad person. There's no judgment in there. It is deliberately uh, just a piece of information transfer. And then it's your choice what you do with that. So when I went to see Jerry and we talked about it at that time, they'd been running this in uh, 150 to 200 hospitals across America for about 10 to 15 years, but with various ones coming on along the time. They had had 37,000 of those what they call cup of coffee conversations. Only 2,000 people repeat offended. They had a second cup of coffee conversation at that point. Again, this is all peer-peer. This is not authority interventions at this point. Uh, A second cup of coffee conversation, they were down to 267. That is the first level at which the boss got involved about this stuff. And these were all doctors. And if I'm honest, people, people might trust doctors, but they frequently also think that doctors are arrogant. And depending on which system you work in um, and which specialty people do, that that varies. Um, but Jerry Hickson's work was completely mind-blowing from my perspective. So it's this idea that you put the responsibility onto somebody's shoulders to do that. probably doesn't work for a lot of us. But getting a second messenger who's not in it for the fight, who's in it with respect, who's in it to support seems to completely change the dynamic of how we do this. Uh, and we've been we've been talking with people around, about that around the country for uh, the last few years. Uh, there, there are even, there are organisations in Rabia Imtiaz in um, Kettering. She runs this system at a board level. She's their medical director and they have a system that they run at their board level so that people hear about things and aren't blundering through life making the same mistake over and over and over again without anybody ever telling them. Wow, because I know that, you know, in my experience, um, it's felt like the options are to, yeah, you know, confront the person um, or a formal complaint. And that whole procedure is equally, if not more traumatising than the, you know, those original difficult interactions for everybody. Yeah, the formal complaint route is absolutely well-meaning and an absolute disaster. Christine Porath, again, weirdly looks at this stuff too. 85% of people, when they go through the formal complaint route, whether they are the complainant or the supposed perpetrator, 85% of people come out of that process feeling unsatisfied with what just happened and that's that's a pretty horrible space to be occupying I mean I'm going to talk about something that's a wee bit current I know people might watch this or listen to this a long time in the future but at the moment there's the Wagatha Christie footballers wives thing going on in the UK and you know I, I watched this unfolding with ever greater horror at the impact that that this is having on every single actor and it doesn't matter whether it's one side or the other side that this is turning into he said she said and it's an horrific mess that I do not see people coming out of Uh, I don't see anybody coming out of this somebody will probably win I guess but I don't see anybody coming out with more value in their life I see everybody has being diminished by the process that these guys are going through. And uh, I think that when, when people go through adversarial um, adversarial HR processes, that people tend to get diminished and they tend to drag on and on and on with terrible consequences for the people who are involved in it, particularly the guys who are on gardening leave, who get sent off on gardening leave. And we have this thing in the NHS, and I might be about to trample all over some kind of employment law, but I'm going to say it anyway. We have this thing in the NHS, when when somebody gets sent off on gardening leave, you get told to not contact them. Nobody must have any contact with this person. I I, I got to say, in the best civility saves lives, words bollocks to that. 
if you're a human being who's been who's defined by their jobs and lots of us are and then you get told that you can't go and do that job and that you're sitting at home and your colleagues who care about you are being told that they cannot contact you that's a lot of rubbish and everybody in that situation deserves somebody to reach out and look after them and any time I've ever been aware of it happening within my work, and you, you're not always aware, any time I've been aware of it, I'm straight on the blower. So check in with them, let them know that people are thinking about them. Even if they're thought to have done something bad, you still check in with them because being isolated in these situations must be its own little form of personal hell and a punishment before anyone's decided if something's actually really happened. Um, so I, I think the way that we deal with this is counterproductive and unhelpful an awful lot of the time but it is it is what it is it it feels to me like um another example of how the nhs that the system dehumanizes people you know just as you were saying how you know all this splitting happens and it becomes very difficult to to see people as humans, you know, with all of their needs and complexities and, and people are really, as you said, diminished. Um, and it's so difficult just to have, you know, you, I think you said the word kind of restorative, you know, restorative, reparative processes around, you know, the fact that someone's been hurt, but the answer isn't to kind of, uh, you know, go on a witch hunt in order to yeah. sort that out. There, there are other... But it's easy, isn't it? You, we quite like the witch hunt. It's quite nice when someone's a bad object and we get rid of them and then we decide that, hey, well, that's a problem solved. Um, but I think what it leaves is an anxiety that you could be next. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's undermining psychological safety. So it actually doesn't make people feel safe to have these. No, no. But, it, but in the moment, there's a sense of relief that, you know, that's dealt with if we can pretend it's somebody else, yeah. I mean, one of the things I remember sort of growing up uh, and I never really twigged it but you know it's it's the whole thing of um there but for the grace of god and I, I think as a as a junior doctor I became quite aware of it when I was around folk and something went horribly wrong and I knew it could go horribly wrong for me as well and you know we were all in this kind of frightening place together and I think there was a lot of um a lot of sympathy for each other particularly I graduated at a time when we got paid more but we did stupid hours and you know I would do nine o'clock on Friday morning and uh, no midday on Friday but I would finish at eight or nine o'clock on Monday morning and that whole period of time and I'm not a particularly aggressive individual Um, I'm not particularly shouty um, but I tell you what, you get me on Sunday evening when I've been awake for the previous, I don't know, 36, 48 hours or whatever, um, I hair trigger by that point. And also my decision making was rubbish. And we know that decision making is crap through through just sleep deprivation on its own. You know, being awake all night is about equivalent to being about twice over the drink drive limit. Faster, riskier decisions. It's a crazy place to be. And yet we created a system that did that in the name of, well, in the name of service, I suspect, but we wrapped it up and pretended it was about education and uh, other aspects. I guess, you know, that speaks to, to why, um, you know, incivility, rudeness is so pervasive in the NHS. Or would you agree that it is? I, I feel like it's something that everybody can relate to and, and think of lots of examples. I think it's, I think it's pervasive in healthcare. Um, Lucy and Leap said as much. Gary Kaplan said as much. Um, so th- these are people who have looked at this long term uh, and say, you know, it is kind of normalised in healthcare for people to treat each other in ways which sometimes feel disrespectful. I don't think it's deliberately happening. I think what happens is we try and squeeze more and more and more production out of people. And we do it at the expense sometimes of our humanity. We do it at the expense of having enough bandwidth to actually think about the other human beings in the system, the other people who are trying to deliver care. And instead, we try to keep an eye on our patients. We try to be kind and try to be compassionate to our patients. And we know that we don't manage that all the time as well. But 
that sometimes it feels as though the people around us aren't as deserving of that kind of kindness, compassion. It, it's probably served a little bit by um, the education that we receive, which, and I'm going to be a, a little bit challenging around medical education specifically here. Um, the education that, that I've received was all about personal mastery. It's all about how good are you, Chris? It was all about every exam I ever did was I went in, sat down, there were questions, there was one right answer, a myriad of wrong answers, and it was all about me having information in my head that I could regurgitate. And for me, it sort of became this situation where I I felt I needed to know the answer to everything, I needed to be in charge of every situation, and what that meant was the people around me were my my troops, for me to command, for me to tell what to do. And they just had to do what they were told. And I think that command and control way of behaving is prevalent through loads of the NHS. Where it falls down is pretty much everywhere. Um, there are very few situations where command and control is really effective. And that includes, uh, that includes running trauma teams, running cardiac arrests, which I do as one of the core things in my job. People think that trauma teams and cardiac arrests are all command and control. I stand there and it's boom, 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 boom. If you actually look at what happens in these situations, the good ones, there's a lot of command and control at the front end of it as people settle into roles. And then it opens out. It opens out and there's a dialogue, there's information sharing that goes on. There's people sharing that information so that the person who is leading it is getting as many perspectives as possible and then they're able to make the best decisions that they can with the group. And when we when we fall into this idea of that we have to know the answer to everything, it's really quite damaging. It's damaging to it's damaging to us because we don't know the answer to everything. Nobody does. And at the far end of it is damaging to the sorts of decisions that we make for patients and the way that we treat other members of staff. Um, because what happens is that we don't get the benefit of what they know. And we know that if you treat people in a way that feels disrespectful to them, which is why they need to be able to tell you if something does feel disrespectful, if you treat them in a way that feels disrespectful to them in the moment, you get a 61% reduction. This is the um, errors in Porath work. Um, you get a 61% reduction in cognitive ability in the moment. And that has a tail that lasts for varying lengths of time. Um, so two things are happening when somebody feels offended. The first is that they can't think so well. But the second thing is equally important and equally negative. And that is that in good teams, the single most important factor determining the quality of decision they make is information sharing. And 40 to 60% of the amount of information that we share within teams is directly a consequence of how we treat each other, civility or incivility. When we treat each other well, people share more information. When we treat each other poorly, they don't share information. And I tend to think of it as the, the model that Joanne Gurry is a professor of linguistics in Warwick, and I have been working on is a pool of information, and it goes like this. So if you, if you come up to a problem, Paul, and it's a complicated or complex problem, this is not a there's one right answer problem, this is multiple perspectives. You come up to it, and the pool is like a swimming pool, and it's empty. A little, a little swimming pool, not a massive one, not an Olympic one. You walk up to it, it's empty. As you walk up to it, you bring with you your knowledge and it fills up the bottom of the pool. There's a little bit of water sloshing about in there. That's what you know. Now, you can make your decision based on that or you can get other people to contribute and you can have the people standing all around it. Now, sometimes you don't get a choice of who you get. So my trauma teams, my cardiac arrest teams, I don't get a choice who's there. I get who I get. So all these people are standing around and every one of them has the potential to add to the pool of information. But they will only add to the pool of information and they all have their own taps. They will only turn that tap on if they feel valued and respected in that group. So if I treat people poorly... What happens is, firstly, they don't think so well. Their bandwidth is squeezed down. The second thing is they turn off their tap. So I don't get their information. And even if I could get them to turn their tap on, the quality of information I get is not so good. So 
that that model is one that we take to people, take to leaders when we're talking about how are we going to get the, the best best information in a given situation. When I'm talking about it in trauma teams and cardiac arrest teams, of course, I'm, you don't get choice of who's around it. But if you are thinking about something within your organisation, within your department, then you have a choice if, as a leader about who you get to stand around this pool. And you can you can get a whole bunch of people look, sound, think, just like you have the same values as you. But what you'll get there is the same information kind of over and over and over. You get to saturation very quickly. Or you can choose a different sort of group of people to stand around who represent different values, different sex, sexuality, race, religion, colour, the rest of it. And then you might get a whole bunch of different perspectives on it. Now, that's clearly an equality and diversity uh, agenda, but I would argue that at this stage it's not inclusivity because every single one of those people around this pool has their own tap and they will choose to turn it on based on whether or not they feel valued and respected in that group. And our job as leaders and as team members is to provide environments where other people feel able to contribute and where they feel valued when they do that. And the things that turn that off, the things that cause people to turn their taps off, are sometimes so shockingly small. So, you know, the eye roll. Eye rolls are stunningly powerful. If you're in a group and you start to talk about something and somebody eye rolls, particularly the boss, that's a massive signal to the team. And what happens is the person who notices it tends to shut up and nobody else brings up that topic because there's a very clear signal that that's not acceptable. And it's a relatively small microaggression, isn't it? You know, I mean, it's hard to even know if it was intended to be offensive, which is one of the things in incivility is that the intent, although it feels intentional to the recipient, the intent isn't necessarily there on the part of the person who's doing it. And the sort of other things that people can do is they, they can correct your English halfway through a sentence. Um, they can finish your sentence off for you. And, you know, both of those things. If you're correcting somebody's English halfway through a sentence, you're not listening to their message. You're probably listening to their syntax, to their grammar. Um, and if you're finishing a sentence off for somebody else, you're saying, I know what you're about to say. No, you don't. How, how could you know? You might be right, but you don't know for sure. And it's kind of, it's an arrogance to, to do that. And people do it because they want to get through the conversation quicker. Um, but actually it's not helpful and it shuts the team up. And it's beginning to understand this stuff is quite powerful for a lot of leaders because they can stop and reflect on their own style. And just thinking about, you know, some of the things that happen, particularly when we're working online, you know, people clearly doing some other work over here when you're talking or, you know, clearly yeah. doing something else. Yeah, clearly doing something else, yeah. <laughs> on their phones. That's also really shuts it down. The other thing about the, the problem on doing things over the over the internet and, and actually I just did it right there is that the natural pause at the end of somebody speaking you think the natural pause is there then you jump in to speak and you discover they weren't finished they were that that was you know that was just a little bit of what they wanted to say and they'd had this sort of micro pause before the next thing that comes along and that can feel that can feel like you've been a bit closed down and the intention there is there's frequently no intention there, you know. And sometimes when you get that thing where, um, where you get that thing where some of the platforms compress things, and then a few moments later you see it, their face seems to speed up, and all the words come really quickly for a few seconds, and then it slows down again. And you start talking over something, and then then you know that you look like you know you look like a complete monkey. You know, you like, what have I done? You know, I can't believe I've done this to somebody. I've sort of spoken all over the top of them, particularly if there's somebody that you want to you want to impress you or, or or somebody just that you respect and you've sounded like you know hey listen to me it's all about me so chris lots to digest there i'm wondering if we could distill that into some helpful things that people listening could take away so if they for example if you someone who's uh, working in an environment and facing rudeness at work and it's really affecting you what advice would you give to, some, to someone who's at the receiving end? 
yeah, the practicalities of what people can actually do around this are, are fascinating. For a while, I got really bogged down in the idea of what can we do to the individual who won't change. And actually, I think that's a wrong place to start to look at this because there's some really great work by people like Anna Baverstock in Somerset. Anna's a community paediatrician and Anna did some work with Caroline Lacey and Caroline Walker where what they did was basically raise awareness of the impact of incivility on performance. That's it. Um, there's a wee bit about how you might start to tackle it, but it was only a one-hour intervention. And what they found was that when they started to do this project, and they did it in maternity, when they started to do this project, um, about 60% of people believed that behaviour mattered in terms of performance in the organisation. By the time they had finished it, they were at 100% within matern the maternity part of the organisation. Now, when they started, um, about 70% 70, 70 of people said they'd seen uncivil behaviour in the previous few weeks. By the time they got to the end of the project, that was down to 50%. And what this says to me is that there are a bunch of us out there who are um, emotionally intelligent enough to get that how we're behaving might have this impact on other people and then to moderate it, to choose to behave in a different way in that setting. And I think that has to be the starting place. At least for me, it has to be a starting place. Uh, other people I know are seduced by the starting place being the big stick to beat anybody up who behaves in an un uncivil fashion. But as we've already said, I think a lot of people are behaving in uncivil fashions and not recognising A, that they're doing it, or B, that it has a negative impact on the people around them. So let's start off with a wee bit of education. Let's st start off by letting people know about this. Then beyond that... There, there's work towards helping people to understand what is perceived as uncivil within their organisations, within their groups, what are the, the social norms in their groups. And then beyond, and allowing people to challenge the norms, you know, because you know your, your norm may well not be a good norm. Um, and then beyond that, it's about putting in place uh, putting in place a process that we can respectfully let people know the impact on somebody else of an of an interaction they were involved in. And, and I know that the language there is very slightly clunky, but it's not about saying they made somebody else feel something. It's just saying there was an interaction at the end of it, this other person felt lousy. Um, and then looking to embed ways of of having those conversations within within organisations. I mean, I, I've twice, twice people have come and spoken to me about stuff where... I have caused significant offence to other people. And on both occasions, I had literally no idea. On, you know, on one occasion, I'd asked a really simple question. My, my question literally was about time. Instead, what they heard was me saying they're, they're useless at their job and I don't respect them. And I genuinely asked a question, the answer to which I expected to be 2am or 3am. And, you know, people hear a different intent behind your question. And, and on the other occasion, um, I had an emergency medicine, a very touchy specialty. I'm not somebody who likes hugs and stuff like that. I, I've got like a general Belgrano exclusion zone around me, given half a chance. I'm very sort of traditional sort of Scottish male, do not touch me. And I play music and musicians hug each other left, right and centre. I'm like, I'm deeply uncomfortable with this and I've had to kind of get used to it. But I mean, if, if this was on video, you'd see my face pulling itself into a contortion of horror. Um, anyway, I had to get used to it. But emergency medicine, we're all squashed together. I once counted 40 people in a 16 square metre radius in our department. That was in covid you know, holy crap, you know, uh, it's social distancing. Anyway, this, the thing that happened was miles before COVID and a colleague was really upset and I could tell that she was really upset and I gave her, I did give her a hug, but I gave her the sideways hug that I give to my niece who doesn't like hugs. So stood alongside her, 
shoulder to shoulder, not front to front, shoulder to shoulder. I put my arm across her other shoulder, I gave her this tiny wee squeeze. I said, it'll be okay. I hope it'll be okay. And then discovered sometime later, because somebody came and told me that she was really hurt by that, that she's somebody who hates people being in her zone. And as soon as I knew that, I mean, I did what people do. I went, I found her, I said, sorry, there was no intention of that. But she felt that I, that I had to come into her body space uh, and that I wasn't invited to be there. And I totally understand that, totally respect it. My intention was completely pure in what I did, but her perception was different. And my responsibility in that setting is not to prove that I had pure intention. My responsibility is to recognise how it had affected her and to let her know that I wouldn't do it again. Because that, you know, I only wanted, at that moment in time, I was just wanting to be her friend and to let her know that she wasn't alone. So these things happen in our lives. Chris, in that situation, um, someone else gave you that message that she wasn't able to come directly to you. Um, so that I guess that's a thing I'm taking away from this conversation about the role that um, what you know you called a, a second messenger can play in this and that can so helpfully facilitate that process, particularly when there is a power issue there or where people are, you know, feeling um, really scared or, or upset yeah. about things. But I guess that I'm, I'm feeling like, as, as you described, that that's a role that, that needs some training and support um, in order to have that, those conversations. Yeah. We, we give people training and support to do it. We do it a wee bit differently to how the, the guys in Nashville would do it. Um, and the, the training and support that we give to people to do it takes about an hour. And for a variety of reasons, one of which is that the people who are selected to do this, we have a system that allows folk in departments to, to choose who the right people to have these kind of conversations are, which means that we're already pre-selecting people who are perceived as being um, empathic, generally. And w we teach them how to have the conversation in a three-part fashion. We don't expect them to always do it like this, but this is how I try to do it. And it's the three parts. So the two overarching things are what we said earlier. You're going to care for the person you're talking to in the moment, and you're going to try and deliver a piece of information. And the, the three-part conversation goes, one, the check-in, how are you? No, really, how are you? And the pause. And the waiting to hear what comes back. Now, mostly people are fine. Sometimes they're a bit hacked off with stuff. And that's actually what's happened, is that they're hacked off with a whole bunch of other stuff and been short with folk as a consequence of it. Um, but occasionally you get told really quite devastating things that are going on in someone's life. Very, very occasionally... You listen to this and you think, this isn't somebody who should really be at work right now. Now, when we teach people how to do this, there is no therapeutic role for the person who is doing it. That, that's not appropriate. Um, but we teach signposting. So so if some somebody's in a situation, for whatever reason, where they are utterly, utterly overwhelmed, then we will signpost them in the direction of their line manager, occupational health, GP, whatever, there are a whole bunch of other things that are out there. But most people are okay. So the second bit, and the second bit is about this specific instance. So, you know, hey, Paula, what happened uh, in the department yesterday? And you might think your day was fine. Most people do. When people came to me about this, I thought everything was fine. I didn't know something had happened. Um, but sometimes you'll know. You say, yeah, I had a conversation with Charlotte. And in the conversation, I made this joke. And I realised afterwards that this could have sounded racist. But I think it's okay because nobody heard. It wasn't meant to be racist, but I don't think anybody heard. And then I can say, well, actually, Charlotte heard. And so did Tom. And they were a bit taken aback. And what people tend to do at that moment in time is move into what's called service restoration mode. And service restoration mode is where they go, Okay, that's not good. They might say thanks. Then they say, I need to go and speak to some 
I need to go and speak to those guys because nobody wants to be that person. Very few people want to be that person. So then they go off to try to um, make retributions. Or, or you have the conversation and they have no idea what went wrong yesterday at work, which is what happened to me on both occasions when people came and spoke to me. And the final bit is the delivery of a piece of information. And it goes like this. It goes, uh, so Paula, uh, after you and Charlotte spoke yesterday, she was really upset. And I know you'd like to know. I know you'd want to know. And that's it. And it's, it's as I said earlier, without judgment. It is the delivery of a piece of information that, that doesn't say that, you know, you were nasty to Charlotte. It, it doesn't say that you're a nasty person. It doesn't say that you're unprofessional. It doesn't say any of those things. It says you had an interaction. Somebody else felt lousy afterwards. Then it becomes yours to deal with. And what we know, and we cannot tell how many people do this, but what we know is a lot of people at that point will seek out the person that they have, um, they, they've had the conversation with, and they will tr- go and talk to them about it. We know that some people don't, but most of them still take it on board and don't do the same thing again. And you know, not everybody's got the the emotional intelligence to be able to go and have those conversations and to be vulnerable, and to admit that you know, or to go to go and empathise with somebody else feeling lousy in that moment. Um, but we know that 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 information drives behavioural change. And if you think about if you think about the sort of people who do healthcare, and you think about the, the sorts of people who are quite mechanistic and, and transactional in how they see the world. It isn't surprising that a lot of those people perhaps might not see the emotional side of this so obviously. And we all need help to see the emotional side of stuff. Um, I had a lovely conversation with a guy called Nigel Aitchison at the um, CQC. And he was talking about CQC inspections. And CQC inspections cause a world of distress to organisations. Um and he was saying, we don't expect people, organisations to be perfect, but we love it when they are sensing, when they are trying to reflect on themselves, when they're trying to know where they come from, trying to see how they are seen by other people within the organisation. And I thought that was a really powerful message. And I also thought it would be a bloody powerful message if the CQC were to let people know that they wanted organisations to be sensing rather than being perfect and to be able show, to show protocols for everything under the sun. Because protocols simply don't work for many situations. That's a whole other conversation. And it's making me think about um, compassion, really. And we, we had Chris Irons on the podcast um, a little while ago, and he was talking about you know the definition of compassion being a sensitivity to the suffering of self and others and a commitment to alleviating that. And the first part of that is being able to notice what's going on. And when we are full up and, you know, lots of stress, um, we, we, we can't notice what's going on for other people and, and even what's going on for ourselves. So um, that sounds like a really, you know, nice compassionate intervention there, bringing those two parts yeah, together. and I think so many people are currently running, and they're either running on empty or running on full, depending on how you look at it. Um, and, you know, I met a friend last night. I haven't seen him for a little while. I asked him how he's doing. He said, okay. He said, actually, not so okay. I've been, been off work for the last four weeks. I'm off for another four weeks. I'm completely burnt out. Um, and I see this happening around me all the time. And... One of the problems with this is that as people get burnt out and they then have to have some time off, um, if you know if, if the system works okay, they have to have some time off. But that then loads more responsibility onto everybody else within the system, and there's a kind of domino effect that that, that happens. And I, I think it's really useful to be able to notice that there are people who are bellwethers within within groups. There there are people once they start to have a little wobble. You know, that just means that that wobble's coming to other people within the group eventually, and, and we need to reflect on that. I mean, the, the whole role of compassion 
within organisations is fascinating. I heard a reference the other day um, to somebody who was talking about compassionate ruthlessness. And it filled me with fear. Um, it felt to my mind when I was hearing about it, it felt like a corruption of intention, uh, an excuse for ruthlessness. And yet at the same time, I understand within systems, sometimes sometimes there are things that need to happen. But the absence of Ruth is not something that I think is a particularly good thing in most people's lives. Um, and to wrap it up as compassionate ruthlessness sounds like it sounds like quite a damaging perspective to take. And probably, I would say, a fundamental kind of misconstruing yeah, of what compassion isn't it? is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and in, within the kind of compassion-focused therapy literature, they you know talk about the qualities of compassion being um, warmth, wisdom, strength and courage. Um, so really, it, it, it doesn't need, you don't need ruthlessness yeah, <laughs> in order to be effective. And yet, and yet we ask the impossible of people on such regular basis. And, you know, if I'm thinking, you know, I, I think about how people who lead up departments can regularly get asked to produce more with less. And, you know, that that probably had some validity of when there was a lot of low-hanging fruit and people could make things better quickly. But, you know, we had 11 years of austerity. Arguably, still we're still in austerity. And, you know, most of the low-hanging fruit's gone. And I look around and I, and I look at where people are being asked to make savings. And there's just a massive risk when, when we work in in systems that use proxy indicator of proxy indicators of quality, like for example finance, um, and then they expect people to deliver that, and they are they are measured on that. So I, I worked in mid staffs, and in mid staffs the exec team was measured on finance and pretty much nothing else. And the exec team, uh, this was an existential crisis for them. The, the exec team in Stoke, next hospital up the road, the next ho the exec team in Stoke failed their financial stress test and got sacked en masse. For the exec team in Stafford, the failing of financial stress tests literally ran the risk of them losing their jobs. And they're like us. They've got houses, homes, cars, families, the rest of all the rest of it. And that was the environment that those guys were, were working in. So they drove their decision making through finance. If you look at um, if you look at Shrewsbury and Telford just now, and I do a bit of work with the guys in Shrewsbury and Telford, and they're good people. And they were measured on, within maternity, they were largely measured on C-section rates. And they were lauded for their very low C-section rates. We, we see this happening time and time again, where people have um, proxy indicators for performance within complex systems. And then they get squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And the people who are being measured by that, they're not allowed to think broader. They're, they're really not even allowed to be that compassionate a lot of the time. They are just measured on that one thing and they're hung, they're drawn, they're quartered on their performance around that particular thing. And it's a really messed up way of trying to understand complex systems. But it's seductive. It's seductive to politicians who want to be able to understand healthcare and you know, for most of us who've worked in healthcare for a long time, and I've been in healthcare, I've been qualified as a doctor for more than 30 years. I don't understand it. And I don't know anybody I think really does. And we're all using heuristics to understand other people's worlds. And for me, the, the problem with that is we really don't. And the best way to understand it is by asking and telling, by having environments where people feel able to talk and to contribute. And all of those conversations are underpinned by how we treat each other, and that's civility. When we treat each other in a civil fashion, we have a chance of getting information. If we treat people in an uncivil fashion, they just turn off the tap. We're not going to get that information from them. And somebody once said to me that the civility work, uh, and it really stung, they said, 
Chris, come on, this is a bit basic, isn't it? And uh, I, internally I was raging. And I couldn't think, which is quite interesting. So one of those things when you start to get a bit of the rage going on in your head, then you can't think and you're not the smart version of yourself that you want to be. Um, but I went away and I mulled it over while simultaneously still being a bit stung on a regular basis. And then I realised that I kind of agreed with them, except for the word was wrong. It's not that the civility stuff is basic. It's that it is fundamental. You cannot build these good relationships where we share information if it's a psychologically unsafe environment where people are too strung out to treat each other well. So there's a responsibility to create the right environment, but also to provide people with a working environment where they as individuals are not overloaded so that they can also contribute to this positive environment where, or if not a positive environment, an environment where we can talk to each other, hear each other, give each other space and explore ideas. Because without that, we, we starve ourselves of the oxygen of information, which leads to poorer decision making. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please do share it with others, post about it on social media or leave a rating and review. I'd love to connect with you, so do come and find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also sign up to my mailing list to keep up to date with future episodes and get useful psychology advice and tips straight to your inbox. All the links are in the show notes. Thanks again, and until next time, take good care.